zero, and that sawdust would be just caked in that truck, and you'd have to shove it out. Well, the man that delivered it, his name was Bob, um, a, a very simple man, and Bob had come to know Christ about the same time I had came to know Christ. We'd be out there at night, 9 o'clock at night, in sub-zero weather, shoveling that sawdust out of that truck, just talking about Jesus. And I can remember very well both of us saying, it, it just, it's just so special just to say the name of Jesus. And that really is the, the simple love that we have for Jesus when we first come to Christ. And uh, I think sometimes we, we, we learn more and more and more, and we kind of lose that, that special, simple love that we have. Certainly that was the trouble in the church. I believe it was Ephesus who had lost their first love. And what it's talking there about is, is the, the level of love that you just have for Jesus. And I could just remember that as we were singing that song, that, that special love that Bob and I had for Jesus. And I hope all of you um, have that love for Jesus. I hope you continue to experience just that simple love for the person of Jesus and to know that Jesus came to save you from your sins. Um, the message this morning is going to be more of a topical message, so I don't really have a passage to begin with before we go to the Lord. Um, but I would like to just read to you Psalm 100, verse 3. Um, back when Kathy and I were involved in Awanas, this was one of the very first verses that the children needed to learn before they could even get their books to start memorizing verses. This is just like an introduction into Wanas. And it was the first verse that they needed to learn. And it's Psalm 100, verse 3. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So critically important for children to understand. God is the creator. They are the creation. Therefore, they must listen to God. They must obey God. He's the creator. They're the creation. And as the creation, you never tell the creator what he is supposed to be doing. You listen to the creator and you do what he tells you to do. And I don't know how other WANA programs work, but when Kathy and I were in WANA, I made sure the children understood that. That's what that verse is all about. That verse is telling you that God's your creator. You are the creation. You must listen to your creator. Let's pray. Our great almighty God, we do praise you this morning that you are our creator and that you are our sovereign. Yet, Father, this morning we would praise you that you are not just our creator. You are our redeemer. You have a right over our souls as our creator and you have a right over our souls as our redeemer. There should be no people on the face of this earth who desire more to be obedient to you and to be pleasing to you and to live according to your word than those who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are not just your creation. We are your redeemed creation. And we are infinitely, infinitely grateful to be called among the redeemed and to know Jesus as our Savior this morning. We praise you and we thank you, almighty Heavenly Father, for having redeemed us from our sins. And we pray, Father, that if there are more sitting here yet this morning to be redeemed, that today would be the day that they come to see Jesus as Savior and Lord. In Christ's name, amen. The title of the message this morning is Biblical Motherhood, A True Sanctuary for Children. Biblical Motherhood, a true sanctuary for children. 
In my notes, I have four pages of notes, and the first three pages are introductory. And um, notes that you picked up up front, your first page is those three pages, very, very briefly summarized. And so I won't actually get into the points of the message until the backside of the sheet that you picked up in front, just so you kind of know that so you don't get confused about where is he at in comparison with these notes he gave us. So last week I was listening to Al Mohler on the briefing, and I heard him talk about a documented crisis among the children of this nation that is affecting not only those in high school and junior high school, but also those in the lower grades of grade school. The title of Moeller's briefing that morning was, What Happens When Marriage, Family, and Community Are Subverted? And then the subtitle was, America Has a Loneliness Epidemic and Its Teenagers Are in Severe Mental Health Crisis. Its teenagers are in a severe mental health crisis. His briefing was based upon a secular view of the world. By that, I mean that his initial points, which he makes, were a summary of the assessment that the unbelieving world is making concerning the youth of this country. The briefing gave us Moeller's understanding of the secular worldview concerning the mental health of this country's young people that come from three main secular media articles. Three main articles that he read to have this assessment to how the world is viewing a mental health crisis among our youth. The three articles are this, and you can kind of get from the titles of where, where all this is going. It's life or death, mental health crisis among U.S. teens. That came from the New York Times by Matt Richel. How loneliness is damaging our health. That also came from the New York Times by John Leland. Children as young as eight should be screened for anxiety, experts recommend. That comes from the Washington Post, Brianna Abbott. Moeller's consensus of these articles was that the secular society is seeing an alarming rate in the increase of mental illness and anxiety disorders and mental health disorders among the children of our country. At first glance, the cause for this was placed upon the consequences of COVID restrictions and the effect on the social well-being of young children and teens. But upon further study, it was determined that these types of issues have been present long before the lockdowns, and it was the lockdowns that had accentuated this long-existing, ever-increasing problem. I do not question the world's view of youth of our country. I do believe many today among our youth have mental problems of anxiety, fear, and uncertainty. And I have no doubt that many youth are struggling with what is reality. I would not be surprised to learn that there are many eight-year-olds that have anxiety complexes. Moeller recognizes that the unbelieving world has their theories as to the reason for these issues. But from the believer's standpoint, Al Moeller correctly identifies the source of the problem as being a constant subversion of marriage. A subversion that not only has attacked the duration of a marriage, but the very essence of a marriage. A subversion of marriage that becomes a subversion of the family which in turn becomes a subversion of the community. Attack and tear apart God's plan for marriage, and you are attacking and tearing apart God's plan for family, and you are attacking and tearing apart the very core of God's plan for community. God said ages ago that it is not good for man to be alone. Man being alone was a problem. Ages ago, from the very moment of creation, Man being alone was a problem. 
The solution to the problem was to provide man with a woman and to establish the institute of marriage, a permanent, lifelong, binding relationship between one man and one woman. This solution also included the establishment of the nuclear family, the man being the father and the woman being the mother, and together the procreation of children. From these children would come other children, from which would come other nuclear families, from which would come community. The family, God's design for family, is the core, the basic core to community. The nuclear family is made up of children from the sexual union of one man and one woman who have permanently bound themselves together in marriage. The man being the father of those children and the woman being the mother of those children. This is God's design for family. This is the essence of a family. The family God has designed. This is the core, the building block for a healthy society. God's design for families is the foundation to a healthy society. Subvert marriage and you will subvert family and you will subvert God's plan for a healthy society. When you start to subvert God's design for marriage and family, you will start to destabilize the very foundation of a healthy society. For decades, the culture has been attacking God's design for the duration of a marriage. God's design for the duration of a marriage has always been for the marital relationship to be a permanent relationship that only comes to end because of death. Of course, our culture has abandoned the concept of marriage being a permanent relationship long ago, and the church, for a large part, has only been too happy to follow the culture in this regard. The culture has also abandoned God's design for the essence of marriage. God's design concerning the essence of marriage is the joining together of one man with one woman, a man and woman determined anatomically at birth, males having an X and Y chromosome and females having an X and X chromosome. Now, isn't it sad that I need to make that point? Isn't it sad that we live in a culture where we don't even know who is a male and who is a female? And isn't it sad that we have people that want to push on children in school at the age of kindergarten to question their sexuality? Is it any wonder that eight-year-olds are confused about reality? To me, it's strange. My five-year-old grandson can walk out in the field to where the newborn calf is, and if daddy was not afraid of the cow being too protective of that calf, he would tell him to go out there by yourself, pick up the tail, and see whether it's a boy or a girl. And Waylon would come back and tell daddy, Daddy, we got another heifer. Daddy, we got another bull. He has no problem understanding the difference between male and female, but yet we have confused that. Is there no wonder that children are confused about reality? What is reality? We are creating the problem. And by we, I mean mankind. Al Mohler believes it is the culture's abandonment and its subversion of God's design for the family that has led to the multitude of mental problems society is clearly seeing in our youth. And I believe he's right. But whether or not society will agree he is right does not matter. It doesn't matter whether society agrees that Al Mohler is right. Certainly we as Christian parents and even a church want to be doing all we can to ensure the mental stability 
of the children within our personal families and within the families of this church. Certainly, we as Christians want to be sure we do everything we possibly can to ensure the mental stability of our children, of our own children and the children in this church. What can we as parents, what can we as Christian parents do to better ensure the mental stability of our children? More specifically, what can our Christian mothers do to ensure the mental stability of our children? And what can we do to help and encourage Christian mothers in this regard? It's Mother's Day, so we make this message pointed at mothers. But there is absolutely nothing in this message that is restricted just to mothers. The three points that I'm going to make about what helps to have a sanctuary in a home are three points that every single one of us must understand, and they are three attitudes that we must respond to every situation in life. This is for mothers, but there's not anything in this message that we all cannot benefit from. Now, when it talks about what mothers can do, there are many avenues I could take this morning. Mothers certainly need to start by making sure they have done all they can to teach their children the core biblical truths which are foundational to the Christian faith. Certainly that's a good place to start, moms. Teach your children everything you can about the core foundational truths of Christianity. Certainly doing all that you can to lead your children to saving faith in Christ is essential. Very important. To do everything you can to lead your children to Christ understanding that it is God that will open up their hearts to trust in Christ. Raising your children to have solid biblical morals is essential. Making sure your children are a benefit to society and not a drain on society is important. It's important that we raise children to be contributors and not takers in our society. All those things are important, but this morning I want to speak to you about the importance and the priority of providing your children with a sanctuary to live in. Providing your children with a sanctuary to live in. I was brought up in a sanctuary. Not once, not once in all my childhood did I ever hear yelling and screaming from my father and from my mother. Not once. The only yelling and screaming that was done in our house is when my brothers and I couldn't get along. That's where the yelling and screaming, but never from my parents. I distinctly remember every day getting off that bus and coming home and knowing there would always be a hot bowl of soup for me in that house. In my senior year, the way our school was structured, I was done for school by noon. And all my brothers and sisters, they were on a different schedule. And so when I came home, my mom and dad, they would always have a meal prepared, a hot meal. And so that when we got done eating, Dad and I were ready to go outside and work. And living on a beef farm with lots of cattle, we always had some steak. And so just, just and, and, and those are just examples. And you don't need to, to zero in on the examples. I'm just trying to, to describe to you. My upbringing, my household was a sanctuary. And no matter what happened on the school bus, I came home to a sanctuary. And no matter what happened in school, I came home to a safe place. A place where I knew I was safe. My mom had six children. She lost one between the fourth and the fifth. She has 23 grandchildren. And last I counted, 18 great-grandchildren and counting. See, that, that's sanctuary. Even that extended family is important to sanctuary. 
one of the unfortunate realities of us leaving Michigan to go to California is we took our children away from that extended family. Extended families are important. Again, I'm not saying that you have to have extended families, but if you have that opportunity, extended families are, are, are incredibly important. And, and our culture has lost this. I would dare say that very few of us could say, certainly Kathy and I can't, we can't say that our children grew up never hearing mom and dad yell. I can't say that. Certainly they heard us yell. And I would say that most of you, your, your children have heard you yell and scream a few times. But, but we, we, we can work harder at providing that sanctuary for our children. Moms, this sanctuary actually starts the moment of conception. At the moment of conception, that sanctuary starts. No one but the mother can provide a sanctuary for the human life when the human life is at its most vulnerable stage. How sad it is that our culture has brainwashed women to believe that this great privilege has become an obstacle in life. Being able to provide a sanctuary for the unborn child is viewed as a nuisance in life. Being able to provide a sanctuary for the unborn child is viewed as a hindrance in life. Being able to provide a sanctuary for the unborn child is viewed as a disparity in life. It's not fair that fathers can keep right on working during the gestation period of their children, whereas mothers oftentimes need to quit work in order to take time to be pregnant. This assumed unfairness is deemed as a disparity or inequality that holds women back while giving men an unfair edge at the workplace. That's the reality of how our culture is viewing pregnancies. Listen to the comment from Senator Hirono from Hawaii, quoting her, I cannot think of anything the government could do to men that would be comparable to forcing a woman to have a child. I can't think of anything that our government could do to a man that would be comparable to forcing a woman to have a child. I think she put that out on a tweet, something out on social media, and she got pretty hit pretty hard by that. And it was very simple. A lot of people just responded, being drafted to go to war and experience the horrors of war and even death might be considered to be worse than having to go through nine months of pregnancy. Listen to Governor Newsom. If you oppose abortion, you are more interested in control than in family values. If you oppose abortion, you're more interested in control than family values? How can one ever think that killing the unborn child is to be done in the name of family values? What sort of family values is it that disowns children? If that same life, the life of the unborn child, is found in its existence tied to anything other than a, a mother's womb, that unborn life would be recognized as a human life. The only reason that the life of the unborn child is recognized as being human is because the very child's existence is robbing someone of their individual autonomous freedoms. The only reason that an unborn child is not recognized as being human is because that child's very existence is robbing someone else of their individual autonomous freedom. I was told this morning that if you squash, if you break the egg of an eagle, it's a $250,000 fine or two years in prison. You can take a pheasant egg. You can take a chicken egg. And you know there's life in that egg. You know there's life in that egg. Why don't we see 
the life inside the womb as being life. It's because it's causing inconvenience. Now, this may sound strange, but if God had decided for procreation of human beings to happen in eggs, and if, and if you could somehow have the unborn child in an egg, and that egg was somewhere off, not bothering anybody, not being uh, an inconvenience to anybody, we would recognize the, the life in that immediately. What is determining people to see that the unborn child has no life? It's because that unborn child is causing an inconvenience. It's a hindrance. It's an attack on the mother's autonomous freedom. We need to teach our children. We need to teach our young children, our young daughters, how precious it is that God has given them the opportunity to give birth. Why do we have a culture that has such a negative view on pregnancy? Why has the privilege of providing a sanctuary for the unborn child become a drudgery that is forced upon a woman? What have we done in our culture that has caused people to have such a horrific view of giving birth to a child? These are questions I have seriously asked myself in the last 24, 36 hours. And I know when Kathy was expecting, I did not have any degree of the understanding of the, the preciousness that, that was going on within her. And I was talking to Stevens about this this morning. And perhaps one of the differences is, is we didn't have the sonograms. I didn't see the child. But there was no sense growing up somehow of how precious motherhood is. And maybe because we just took it for granted. There wasn't such an attack on motherhood. But we, we must help our children to understand how precious it is to give birth to a child. How precious it is that if God would allow our daughters the blessing of, of being with child, what a, what a privilege they have of giving up the right of that part of their body so that little child could have its right to that part of the body. I am fully convinced that when pregnancy occurs, the woman no longer has a right to that womb. That womb now becomes the sanctuary, the right of that child, the order of creation, just the way creation works, says this. That, that we get rid of this idea that it's my body. It's not. As soon as that child is conceived, your womb is not yours. It belongs to that child. And begin to teach our children at the youngest age possible that that's a rich, rich blessing. Scripture teaches that it is a rich blessing for, for a woman to be able to give birth. And somehow we've lost that in our culture. And mothers, you need to understand that your womb is a sanctuary. And it starts right there. And that sanctuary must continue on into infancy and, and, and toddlerhood and grade school and junior high and senior high. And if possible, even after senior high. I asked Sarah beforehand, because I didn't want to say this without actually talking to her. I said, Sarah, are you happy to come home? You know, as much as I know she loves school, and she loves her friends, and she loves the dorm life, and she loves school, she's happy to come home. My four brothers and my sister all went to college the, the traditional way. They went to college right out of high school. I can remember distinctly, my older brother, I can't, get, can't wait to get rid of Home. I just can't wait to go out to college and live the college life. Within three weeks, he's coming home every week. 
in part because he wants my mom to do his laundry, but he's coming home every week. Even as a, 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 a dad with children, there's that sense of when we go home, there's, it's, it's still a sanctuary, especially when my mom was well and when my dad was there. To, to, to go home, it's the sanctuary. The home is to be the sanctuary. And this morning, I want mothers especially and all of us to understand there are three attitudes that we must have in order for our sanctuary to be a home. Three attitudes that we must have. Certainly there is a whole list of attitudes. Certainly there's a whole list of things that we could look at that are important to motherhood and that are important to being a, a home, being a sanctuary. But I've got three attitudes. And I just want to mention this before we look at the three attitudes. Life is 10% of what happens to you and 90% of how you respond to what happens to you. Understand that. Life is really only 10% of what happens to you. Life is 90% of how you respond to it. How you go through life is largely dictated not by what has happened to you, but how you respond to what has happened to you. Every situation you face, every hardship and blessing you experience, I believe, must be responded to by these three attitudes. Everything in life Everyone sitting here, everything in life must be responded to by these three attitudes. You may be able to think of other attitudes. That's very well possible. But I'm telling you, you cannot live the life that God wants you to live if you cannot respond to every situation with these three attitudes. Let me just give you the attitudes to begin with. First of all, an attitude of conviction concerning God's work in your life. You must have an attitude where you are absolutely convinced, convicted, that God is working in my life. No matter what the situation, whether it's a blessing, whether it's a hardship, no matter what it is, as a Christian, you must have this in your mind, first of all, God is working in my life. Second of all, a contentment concerning God's working in your life. And with contentment, I would also say commitment. If you're content with it, you're going to be committed to it. See, it's not enough to just know that God is working in your life. You must be content with that work and committed to that work. Now, it's not enough just to be committed to the work either. You must be grateful for that work, happy, thankful for the work that God is doing in your life. First of all, let's look at the conviction concerning God's working in your life. A very familiar passage, Romans 8, 28. For we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. But first of all, let's consider what it means to love God. Look with me in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. We love because He first loved us. We know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those that love God. Understand that the only reason you love God it's because God loves you. And I really like to look at that verse in a different way, the same way, way that, that one of our books of the quarter looked at the verse. We know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those whom he loves. See, I'm not too confident in the stability of my love, but I'm very confident in the stability of God's love. His love is unchanging. And I know that God will cause all things to work together for the good of those whom he loves. 
loves. Now, how has he demonstrated that love? John tells us just a few verses earlier in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10. In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. That's how God demonstrated His love for me. And we have got to get beyond looking at anything else other than the cross to determine whether God loves us. Anything else that happens in your life must be brought through the cross if you want to understand whether God loves you or not. And we know that God for so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. We know that God gave His Son on the cross, but John goes a little deeper here. He says He's a propitiation. Tells us what happened on that cross. And again, I grew up in church never hearing that word, never even understanding the concept, never hearing the concept that my sins were placed on Christ and that Christ bore the wrath for my sins and He continued to bear the wrath for my sins until that wrath was satisfied. Never heard that concept. Somehow I got all the way through seminary and didn't fully understand it. Didn't fully understand it until I began to study Romans chapter 3. That should not be for our children. That should not be for our children. If we want our children to be able to respond to everything as God working in their life, they must know how God has loved them. God has loved them by taking their sins and putting it on His Son and treating His Son as a sinner and pouring out His wrath on His Son's moms. You know this truth. Any mother that has been in this church for any length of time, you know this truth. But when it comes down to actually dealing with the difficulties and the hardships and, and all the stresses of life, and especially the stresses of parenting and raising children, sometimes it's very difficult to remember that. Remember God's demonstration of His love for you and realize He's causing everything to work out together for your good. Everything to work out together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Let's consider what it means to be called according to the purpose of God. And again, this is nothing new to us here. We talk about this all the time. But my question is, my question is, in our Bible studies, in our shepherding groups, in our mothers of, of, of children, in our women's Bible studies, do we talk about these things? When you're in a Bible study and you're talking about the difficulties that you're going through in life, do you stop to think, well, you know, the first thing we need to do is be committed that God is working in our life. Do, do we take what, what, what we teach and do we actually apply it in our day-to-day -day lives and do we take it and help each other out with it? See, there's a reason why we gather together. We gather together to learn God's Word so that when we're together outside of this room and we're going through difficulties, the one who's not going through the difficulty can help the one who in the difficulty is struggling to remember the principles that God has taught us. God is causing all things to work out together for the good of those that love Him and are called according to His purpose. What is life all about? What is the purpose of being a Christian? Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. This is why God is doing everything in your life. Everything in your life is being done to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ. 
Why does God want you to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ? In this context, the reason God wants you to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ is so that Jesus Christ can be the firstborn among the brethren. What does that word firstborn mean? It means the most prominent. God wants Jesus Christ be the most prominent one among us here in this congregation. And that happens when each one of us allow what God is putting us through to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. These are things that we can only accept by faith. And this is where the body of Christ comes in. This is where community is needed to remind ourselves and to encourage ourselves of these truths. Our creative purpose is to glorify God. We were created to glorify God. So number one, no matter what you're going through, no matter what has happened, be convicted that God is working in my life. He is working in my life. I don't see how. I don't see why. But I know he's working in my life. Second of all, you must have a contentment concerning God's work in your life. Look with me in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. We as Christians work really hard at being godly. We work really hard at the do's and don'ts of Christianity. We work really hard at making sure we're demonstrating a Christ-likeness. But do we have contentment? Moms, I don't want to just be overloading and overbearing upon you. But I, but I hope this is somewhat relieving to you. Because I know we can put the pressure on, on moms, especially mothers of young children. Oh, you've got to get up and you've got to do your daily readings. You've got to have your quiet time. You've got to be doing this and you've got to be reading this. And, you, and all those things are important. But here's something that, that, that maybe might seem a little more attainable to you. Just be content. That's the measure of Christianity. That's how you, you can be following all the do's and don'ts. And if you don't have contentment, sanctification is not happening. This is the measure of sanctification. Contentment. It's not so much how much you know. It's not so much what you are doing and not doing. Do you have contentment? Now, Paul helps us understand this concept of contentment a little more in Philippians chapter 4. Turn there with me in Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 10. Paul writes, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along in humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. And in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, of both having abundance and having suffered need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. First of all, very clearly, this idea of contentment and its interpretation of the Scripture is being content with whatever you have, whatever you don't have, whatever your monetary situation, that's the interpretation of the passage. But there's an implication here. There's an implication that is just as important as the interpretation. The implication is to be content. The application is whatever circumstance you want to put it in. Content with the husband that God has given me. Content with the wife that God has given me. 
Content with the job that God has given me. Content with the house that God has given me. Content with whatever. I'm content. Now, look in verse 13. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What's he talking about? I can be content with all things and all things through him who strengthens me. It's very important that we understand that the contentment is coming from Christ as Christ strengthens me. That's important, especially when we understand that the Stoics in the time of Paul believed that enduring pain without showing feelings or complaining meant contentment. There are a lot of people that can endure pain, not complain, show no feelings, and just be a Stoic and go through it, and that was viewed as being content. There is an ability that some people have to just have an external contentment. That's not what Paul is talking about. Paul is not talking about the ability to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and just get through the issue. He's talking about a real contentment in the soul that can only come from Jesus Christ. A peace that surpasses all understanding. That's the contentment he's talking about. And he says, godliness with contentment is great gain. Great gain. What are we gaining? Let's go back to 1 Timothy chapter 6 again, and let's see what it is that maybe Paul is thinking about that we're gaining. 1 Timothy chapter 6, look in verse 3. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with a doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. So what might the gain be in this context? I believe the gain is a correct understanding of the teachings of God, a correct knowledge of who God is. So if you take that view, what we're saying is that if you don't have contentment, you haven't learned what you need to learn about God yet. That's where the contentment comes. It comes right back to the knowledge. And again and again and again, we come back to knowledge. We come back to truth. As you learn the truth about God, there comes a true contentment. And as you have that contentment, there's a gain. It learns to greater understanding about the truth of God. It leads to a greater understanding that God is working in your life. Irregardless of what you're going through, you must understand that God is working in your life and you must be content with that work in your life. And there's just one more point. Not only must you be content, you must be thankful. Thankful. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18. This is God's will for you, that in all things you give thanks in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm not sure I quoted that just right, so let me go back and read it. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I've mentioned before how my seven-year-old, Monroe, seven-year-old now, is just a whiz at memorizing Scripture. First year in Awana, he memorized two books and all the, all the other books that go with the two books. Just a whiz at memorizing Scripture. Again, when I'm there, I'm trying to get him to help the, him understand what the verses mean. And this, I believe, is one of the most important verses for him really to come to grips with. And again, the verse is this. In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. To teach 
little Monroe that even when he goes to race his car in the Iwana Derby and his car does terrible and he's angry and he don't want to talk to nobody, to teach him somehow to give thanks. Give thanks in that circumstance, Monroe. Give thanks in everything. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Are you in Christ Jesus? Are you one with Christ? Have you been baptized into Christ? Then you give thanks. You see, I can, I can picture someone understanding, yeah, I know God's working in my life. I'm content with it. I'm committed to it. But boy, I'm not too happy about it. No. Give thanks. Give thanks in all things. A passage that will help us just a little bit with that is Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Have you received Christ Jesus as your Lord? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Are you truly a child of God? Then walk with Him. Live like a Christian. Live like Jesus Christ. Live a Christ-like life, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him. You're rooted in Christ Jesus. You're being built up with Him. And your faith is being established. What then is the outcome? Overflowing with gratitude. Overflowing with gratitude. <coughs> now, the Apostle Paul gives us a warning here. There's a warning. This is what God wants for you. If you're a born-again believer, He wants you to walk like Christ. If you're a born-again believer, He wants you to be rooted and grounded in Christ. He wants to see your faith growing. He wants to see you overflowing with gratitude. But here's the warning. The warning in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive to philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. What is the world going to tell you when you are being untreated unfairly? The world is going to try to convince you to change that situation. The world is going to teach you to grumble and to complain. Speak up. Take the world, take things in your control. What is the world going to teach you when maybe you have a pregnancy that you weren't planning on? And maybe you have a pregnancy that's going to totally change your life. And maybe this pregnancy was really, really not planned and not wanted. I think sometimes we need to understand just how difficult pregnancy is for certain women and certain young women in certain stages of their life. Understand that. Well, what's the world going to tell them? You've got a right to your body. You've got a right to do with whatever you want. That's not a real child. You know, it's just a fetus. It's not, it's not really living. That heartbeat doesn't mean there's life there. Just take it. And we can go through all sorts of situations in life. What, you've got a husband that doesn't treat you right? Well, divorce him. All sorts of situations in life where the world would tell you not to be thankful, not to be committed, and not to recognize God working in your life. That's all teaching, but it's not according to Christ. Look what he says then in verse 9. For in him... All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in Him you've been made complete. And He is the head over all rule and over all authority. How do you respond when the world 
is telling you to do something that's totally contrary to the teachings of Christ. Paul gives us two responses. Number one, who is Christ? Who is Christ? In Him, in bodily form, dwells all of deity. He is God. Everything that God is, is in Christ. That's the first response. Am I going to listen to the world or am I going to listen to Jesus Christ who is the fullness of the deity in bodily form? Second thought. In Him, you have been made complete. I'm made complete in Christ. In Christ, in whom is the fullness of deity in bodily form. I am made complete in Him. Perfect tense. Some work that's been done in the past that continues on forever. I am complete in Christ Jesus. Everything I need, everything I, I'm going to be. There's no question as to who I am or what my identity is or why I'm here. I am complete in Christ. It matters not what is happening to me. All that matters is that I try as best as I can to be a tool in God's hands and put myself in God's hands that as He brings this difficult situation in my life, I allow Him to continue to conform me more into the person to whom I have been made complete in. And He is the head over all rule and authority. He is my Lord. It matters not what the world says. It matters not what the philosophy of the world is. It matters not what the tradition of the world is. It matters not how much the world wants to attack marriage and family. I have given myself up to the Lord. He's working in my life, and I know He's working in my life. I'm content with what He's doing in my life. And by the grace of God, I will even give thanks for what He's doing in my life. Let's pray. Father, we are so richly blessed to have your word. Lord, I, don't, I can't imagine trying to get through this world without your revelation. So grateful for your revelation this morning. And yet, Lord, I know that there's not one of us here. No one can live according to these truths apart from your grace. This is beyond man's ability. This is supernatural living that takes the supernatural power of your Holy Spirit. And so, Father, we pray now for your grace to empower us to live according to the word that you revealed to us this morning. In Christ's name, amen.